Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more. It's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you to our Difference Maker community where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content out the gate, you're going to get 30 plus minisodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive mini-sode every month. And you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more. And that's with our changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier. But whatever tier that you join at, you will be included in this extra content And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do, and I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. One of our most popular podcasts last year in 2022, and for very good reason, was with Martine Kalau. Many of you have followed her work for a while, and increasingly over the last few months since she was on the show, Martine is an author, a speaker, a commentator on the human aspect of current immigration laws and policies. She's also the CEO and president of Martine Kalau Enterprises. It's a consultancy focused on providing human resources professionals with time, resources, and confidence to drive diversity, equity, and inclusions for many organizations. She holds a master's in public administration focusing on immigration law, and she's authored two books, Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship, and The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. She herself was a stateless and undocumented immigrant survivor, so obviously she brings a lot of personal experience into this very important conversation. Once again, Martine Callow. Martine, welcome to the A World of Difference podcast today. Hi, Lori. Hi, everyone. <laughs> it's great to have you. I'm so excited for people to get to know you, hear about your very interesting background and the work that you're doing, which is so crucial right now. So let's start with uh, a little bit about your background. Who is Martine Kalau? Okay, I will try to keep it short and sweet. And if I start talking too much, just cut me off. But <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, I define myself 
as a stateless and undocumented survivor, was born in uh, Zambia, and um, my family's from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I grew up in the United States, um, New York City, Maryland, um, Ohio, and um, during my journey of being undocumented, and I was actually orphaned at one point, um, I spent seven years in removal proceedings, deportation proceedings, um, trying to fight a system um, and um, really a, a system that was created for people like me to fail. Um, throughout my journey of being undocumented, um, you know, being orphaned, putting myself through school, through college, graduate school, I was exposed to so many different communities. I was invited into different communities, whether being um, the undocumented community, right? And there's sub-communities within that, the stateless community, which is very unique from being undocumented. I went to a prep school, a boarding school that was predominantly all white. Um, I also at one point went to middle school in Columbus, Ohio, which was predominantly African-American, right? Um, and I've navigated through a myriad of different communities and circles. And so it's given me an interesting perspective, Lori, where um, it's widened my lens. And um, I just have a more of like, I think, an epistemic privilege where I understand different perspectives. And so through that lens and through that privilege, I decided that it was time, you know, I worked in the corporate space for about 13 years running learning and development departments globally. And in that work, I was doing a lot of unconscious bias training, you know, diversity training. Um, I realized there was more work that needed to be done and I was able to pinpoint exactly where the work needed to be done. And so that's what I did. I created Martin Kalau Enterprises and our, um, our work and our, our, main objective is to support human resources professionals in being able to make diversity, equity, and inclusion accessible in the workplace, right? That's one. Um, being able to give them more time back because right now, many of them feel burdened by the work, the DEI yeah. work. Yeah, it's tough. It's last, tough. Right. And the last piece is giving them the tools to identify the return on investment right? So that DEI is considered a business imperative in the workplace, so that it is part of the conversation that is had at, you know, at the table with, you know, all other business initiatives and structures. So that's really what, who I am and what my passion is. It's so great because, um, you know, your, your background, I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about that and it's so fascinating. I mean, just the DRC portion alone has just like a million questions I want to ask, <laughs> but, but yeah. um, you know, it's, uh, and then your journey being stateless and documented, you really do your own personal journey has given you uh, a taste of what it feels like to be on the margins. And I think people who are on the margins in any way have a choice to make. And it's, well, I allow this experience to help me see through the eyes and the lens of other people and help them to or will it just constantly be a situation where I feel I, I, I'm powerless? And it, it's true. There's a powerlessness element to that. And at the same yeah. time, you found the place where you did have some power and some privilege. And then you built on that and a, and a level of resilience that, 
that's really remarkable. And, and so um, I, I kind of want to camp out just for a second on just your process of, uh, you said it was at seven years of, um, okay, talk about how that went, because you talk about how the system is stacked against people meant to make them fail. So what are some tips you have for people that might be listening that are in that process currently? That's great. And I actually, um, you know, I have a book that um, provides more tools for individuals who are undocumented or stateless. Um, and also it's my memoir, just sharing my personal journey. So for me, like I, in, in my book and anytime I speak about my journey, my experience, there were three specific components that supported me, that allowed me to empower myself. Right. And because the thing is when you're in a space, whether you're undocumented, whether you're part of another marginalized community, it's very easy to feel like you don't have any agency. You don't have power. More specifically, there's a loss of dignity. Mm. That is like so deep because when we think about these systems, these, um, you know, these things that are boulders that are placed in front of us. And after a while, right, after trying to um, move and push against these walls, some people, many people can feel a loss of dignity, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really important. And I, I, like I, I, you know, when I mentor individuals who are in the same space, I say, you need a team. We mm-hmm. all need yeah, we do back to, and this ties back to what you said earlier, which was, you know, when you're marginalized, it's easy to feel like, to feel that sense of brokenness and aloneness. And when you feel that sometimes you end up push, pushing people away, right? You're downtrodden and you push people away. So what I, I, I suggest is do the opposite, right? Invite a team, but not to help you to invest in you, right? Mm. And just reframing it in that way changes a person, right? It helps them because when we, we think of help, it's charity. It's, it's, you know, it's not a, a quid pro quo, a give and take. It's, you know, there's, there's a sense of pity and there's one person who might feel like they're the savior. They're helping the other person. So it's really important. I tell people, you know, the first thing is get a team and what is that? Who's the team, right? The team is really, you know, someone who you can talk to, right? Mm-hmm. Mental health practitioner, um, a counselor, someone or a friend who can just listen because this mm-hmm. stuff is really, really heavy. And there's no way that any, any human being should have to contain themselves and contain all of that trauma within themselves and not share that with anyone. So that's the first thing. The second thing is having what I call the technical assistant, um, a mentor, a, um, an ally, if you will. So for me, that person was the person who sometimes liaised between my attorney and I, when I was so emotional and I couldn't process things that my attorney was saying, when we go to the doctor, right? What do you know? And like, we're trying to understand what's what the ailment is. What do people usually suggest? 
have someone go with you, right? Get a second opinion, but also have someone go with you because sometimes there's so much emotion, you can't process things. And so that's really, really critical for anyone going through this. Having someone who can go if you end up having to be in the courtroom, right? Knowing what we know about immigration, um, it's under it's not under the judicial system, right? It's under the executive system. So there isn't, there isn't a jury um, and not, you're not always guaranteed an, an attorney, right? So it's really important to have someone there with you. And then the third thing or this third person is having the right attorney, right? An attorney who actually builds you up and is your advocate rather than your savior and having and understanding how to communicate with the attorney. So that's sometimes some of the work I do, volunteer work that I do is to um, help to translate things. So for example, person A, if you don't hear from your, from your attorney for six months, rather than assuming that your attorney has forgotten about you, right? Because that just brings up, elicits a lot of feelings. This is probably what is actually happening. They have a book of maybe 30 other cases. And what they're doing is they're prioritizing, they're focused right now on the person that's actually being deported like tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of stuff that individuals who are in this space, in this situation, this is the support they need, right? And these are the things that they can do. So starting there. Um, so I, I, you know, one, having, you know, a technical assistant, right? Two, having, um, having someone, a therapist, a counselor, third, having the right attorney, right? And having a therapist or counselor that understands the framework of immigration so that when you go into these conversations with them, they're not asking the very basic questions of, so like, what is, what does it mean? What's the definition of being undocumented and doesn't, they don't have context because then you spend more time having to explain it. So these are the type of resources that are needed. Sometimes they're missing, right? And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to provide these tools and resources for these individuals who end up being resources to the to to undocumented immigrants and stateless persons. That's such great advice and obviously spoken from someone who's walked through it, come through it and is helping others. It's just it's just gold. Um, so yeah, I think that in so many challenging issues in life we need a team, but I mean for me last year I built a team around me of different people helping me walk through a particular traumatic event from you know, a therapist that had a specialty in that area to like a career coach to a spiritual director to like mentor. I mean, I had a whole team of people just for that. And it was much more mild than being a stateless, undocumented um, person trying to get citizenship and a situation that was stacked against me. So all the more so a reason for a team. And thank you so much. That is super valuable. So we'll put links in the show notes to anything related to that or um, you know, hopefully there can be resources for people to find like the list of therapists that would have specialty in that area, which is really important to you. Absolutely. Um, actually building, um, a website. I have a website called stateless, um, and, um, uh, stateless and dreamers foundation. 
Um, it's actually a foundation. So I have a website, it's still under construction, but that's where a lot of these resources will actually sit. So an individual can go right to the website and download some of that information so that they can navigate more effectively. Oh, incredible. I know we have listeners listening right now that are going to be heading right there <laughs> because this is, this is what our space is. We have a diverse audience all around the world, but um, we do have quite a few here in the United States that are in that category that listen. And so thank you for that resource. Well, you are a resource for many things today. So I want to make sure we also dig into your book um, about diversity and inclusion. And just tell us, first of all, write it. why did you write this book? I wrote this book because going back to the conversation around accessibility, I felt like, okay, these conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, primarily in the workplace, um, are going way over people's heads, right? Um, and sometimes individuals who are in marginalized communities, um, including myself, I understand there's so much frustration, um, exhaustion, that we end up excluding others from the conversation. Not intentionally, unintentionally we do that. And so in the work that I've done and some of the research that I've done, I've actually had white male CEOs say, you know, I don't feel like I'm allowed to say anything. I don't feel like I'm gonna say the right thing. So I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut. And wow. that is terrifying to me yeah. because I'm thinking, Right. If we, if we don't get the individuals, if we don't include everyone, especially the individuals that are currently right now dominating, driving yeah. corporate America, white male CEOs in these conversations, yeah, then nothing really changes. Mm -hmm. So that was one reason that I wrote the book. Secondly, in the work that I've done, right, you know, building management development programs. Um, you know, being part of a human resources team, I have seen and understood the nuances and the power and the influence that managers have, the business structures that facilitate organizations such as performance management, hiring, attrition, all of those things have two things in common. They're driven by human resources and managers. And these same business structures can influence and influence the makeup of a company, of an organization. And so therefore that's the, that's the connection, right? That's the bridge. DEI and all these business structures, the bridge is human resources and managers. And so I wrote this book specifically targeting managers, but it's also a book, a reference book for human resources so that they're equipped with the tools to support their managers and also carrying the weight of DEI. So it doesn't, yeah. DEI doesn't change or improve in an organization because, you know, we've got an equivalent of a diversity task force and a few people who are passionate about and passionate about it, and maybe even a you know head of DEI, it changes when you know it's filtered throughout the organization and it's part of the business systems and the business structure. Yes, I hear this over and over again here in the Silicon Valley from people working in DEI as well as just you know 
average people working in any role in these um, different tech companies that, you know, there's these different trainings people come in to do like unconscious bias and, um, you know, different things that help people understand. But there's a lot of disconnect between, you know, the information and how it can actually play out. And then there's sometimes it feels like there's just a lot of lip service given toward DEI in the workplace. So how do you handle that type of um, situation or what is your advice, I guess, toward managers and HR in particular around those kind of conversations? Yeah, I think the thing is that we, we make DEI can be very complex, right? I mean, but it should be accessible to everyone. And the way that you make it accessible is through upskilling managers, right? These, these concepts around hiring, how to um, write a performance review, how to look at a resume. I mean, these are things, these are processes and skills that all managers should, right, um, be involved in, participate in. Well, the only difference DEI offers, right, is just shifting your lens just a little bit more. So, It's getting the managers to understand the value of just looking at things, widening your lens a little bit more. So manager, for example, when you think about all the work that you put into hiring the right person and then they don't stay, let's reevaluate why that might be. How did you, what was the process in hiring this person? What were some of the potential unconscious biases that people might have when they're looking at hiring individuals? right? How are you writing the job qualifications? What are some of the um, the common biases that um, that it, that different marginalized groups of people experience in the workplace with compensation, with promotions, right? It's just shifting the lens to show managers that this is just another layer, right? of management development. And it's actually empowering the managers. I mean, like managers get to wear this, this like their cape, right? Like they're the ones that we need to, to, they have the widest belt in an organization. They have the influence, right? Top down, bottom up influence, right? They're the liaison between everyone in the organization is that middle management. They influence the makeup of an organization, right? They influence who stays, who goes. People decide. Sometimes, you know, studies show that people sometimes might be unhappy in an organization, but they will stay. Their longevity all is is tied to, primarily tied to their relationship with their manager. So managers get to remember the power and the influence that they have and the potential they have to, you know, be more successful in, in increased engagement. So that's that's the position in which we, you know, we enter this conversation. So it's not lip service when, especially when you've got metrics and you also can identify the return on investment when we adjust those metrics and we improve the metrics. Yeah. I think honestly, for me, um, I mean, probably for both of us, right. Being people who have grown up and also worked in a variety of spaces culturally and, you know, in different places around the world and that type of thing. 
Um, we, we inherently see a reason for diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, all those things, right? But I think even more so, and maybe for people who haven't grown up in diverse, you know, situations, the bottom line is really the compelling factor. And we have, you know, a situation where we've had the great resignation, we've had the she session going on for a while. We have um, jobs out there that people are trying to figure out how to fill and, and maintain employees. We also have uh, serious issues going on with employee engagement, which I think has not gotten a whole lot better since the 70s. And it, when you bring in DEI to these conversations, then you have a situation where people can find tools to actually help those metrics be better. But I'm interested in this question, just in, you know, in a basic question of how can or why, I guess the question is more, why should companies do more than just appear inclusive? Because we see a lot of appearance of like, pictures that are like, you've got a black woman, a Latino, you know, you've got like the different, you know, Latina, yeah. Native American, oh, this is an inclusive company. But then I hear reports of people once they get inside, they're like, oh, no, that was just all on the website yeah. it really wasn't true. So why would it be important for a company to do more than just appear to be inclusive? Yeah, um, I have a whole chapter dedicated that in my book where I talk about tokenism, right? And token tokenism is, you know, when companies have this, you know, they appear to be inclusive and they decide, and we saw a wave of this happening about a year and a half ago where it was like, hey, we're going to have, you know, X woman on our board because we want more diversity. Well, if you just have one person, this X, you know, this one woman, there's lack of representation, right? And tokenism looks like when we bring in diversity, but we still have beliefs or we still focus, we still interact or look at this person based on our limited single narrative of the group that the person's associated with. And so what ends up happening is that it, it can affect that person's performance, right? Either that person is working so hard to not be the stereotype, right? And it ends up hurting them or they are like, they fall into this single narrative because the people around them won't see them outside of that. So what we know is that that's extremely, can be extremely demanding and exhausting in a person's performance. And what ends up happening is that the person might respond in a num number of ways. They could attrit or they might actually end up reinforcing, right, those beliefs on the next person that comes in, right? And so that is why. And so when we look at, if we actually look at the numbers, right, we can actually look at the numbers and look at, well, how much does it cost to bring someone in and train them? the recruiting costs, all of that for them to leave a year and a half later, right? I mean, we just, and I think that's where we've got to start. And that's why companies should care. That's one reason they should care. Another reason they should care is, you know, if you've got a business to consumer organization, right? You might be missing a huge market just because, well, one, if you have just one person, right, and you, you, you bring in one person to be your 
representation, you know, your representative of diversity, that's a lot of weight to put on this one person to be able to appeal to that, to the market that you're trying to appeal to, to be able to understand that market, to be able to sell. So you need a whole team, right? So this really becomes a business imperative. If your sales numbers are down, right? When, when people are looking at companies are, are looking at their sales targets, what do they do? They sit down, they evaluate where we are, where they do, you know, they look at the numbers, where do we need to be? And what are all the pieces that, you know, are missing and, and what is our target? What's our goal? I'm suggesting that we do the same thing. Now, some people might feel like, oh, Martine, that's so callous. You're making it about you're making it about numbers and money only. Well, it's a business imperative. It starts there, but it can't remain there forever, right? When and if you make it a business imperative and you're looking at the numbers and you're looking at the targets, there's gonna have to be a level of authenticity at some point, right? So if you're trying to appeal to a certain market, you're gonna have to make sure that the salespeople that are, working with this market, understand this community, understand and know how to connect to this community. So at some point, it stops being about the numbers. It starts, it gets real, basically is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that that it makes absolute sense. And it's very practical in terms of how to start. And when we're talking about systems that are unjust or not inclusive or where people don't belong, some of it, some of the work does just start with very practical beginnings like that, but can grow into something with more depth and more meaning. But when we're trying to get people all on board to bring about a change, that's, that's the part of diversity in the system that we also have to consider. Like you were saying, if in diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations, we're leaving out the perspectives of white male CEOs, that's a huge gap. We need everyone around the table, diverse brains, diverse experiences, coming at this problem where I I think that a lot of like early business models that maybe we've left behind and are trying to reinvigorate a bit are the idea that we don't know what the outcome is going to look like, you know, before we sit down to the table. And so sitting down to the table and everybody gets a voice to speak into it, we create something that didn't exist in any of our brains separately, but it's something much more holistic and all encompassing when we've brought these different perspectives around it. And that it works really well with business if you have a market that's global because you need global perspectives. And um, so I think the very minimum starting there is has been a place I've felt compelled to start. And I know many other people in business have too. There's a lot of conversation and we're in a series now that uh, we just started on belonging. And so I know that a lot of conversations I'll hear people say, and I've had this in my own workplace experience as well. You might have a diverse workforce at sure. some level but it's not inclusive, or you might have one that feels a little bit inclusive, but there's not belonging. Belonging feels like this level that's just, it's so hard to achieve. It feels too, too much for a lot of people. So they don't even try, but if you've ever been in a place (laughs) where you've belonged, it's something I think we all kind of long for in our workplaces. And I think that's part of why we're seeing the great resignation happen is the lack of belonging. And so I would love to get your perspective on how we can have companies and organizations that really create these spaces of belonging at work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I go back to, um, it really starts with 
human resources or, you know, whatever companies call it, talent, the people, people, teams, what, you know, um, whatever, you know, sits best with, uh, with anyone, any of our listeners. Um, but having human resources or the equivalent working with managers to really, um, incorporate that into their management development, right? So when we think about management development, right, we think about making sure that when a new person starts, they join the organization, they feel like they know their trajectory of their career, they feel like they're part of the team, right? Um, Managers automatically have to do that to motivate their teams. So this is what I mean. Like, this is not, we're not, this is why I call it the ABCs of diversity, my book, because it doesn't have to be, we can take little steps and just shift our lens. So in terms of belonging, it can look like, and it can start with something as simple as, hey, manager, you know, have you had a conversation with your new hire or with the the people on your team to understand what, you know, what, what, what they're, what they envision or what their goals are, right. In terms of their growth, do you sit with your team and communicate what the vision is for what your vision is for the organization or what your vision is for the team? Do you sit with your team and support them in exposing them to different trainings, like giving them access to different trainings? Do you Do you allow your team members to each feel like they have a say or that they can give input in, you know, whatever uh, projects and initiatives that are coming? So belonging starts with little things. Like I talk about in my book, like I work for this company and I was a pretty, I was pretty senior and I lack, I was scared to go to work. I was scared to go to work. I was scared to go to work. And some would think I was scared to go to work because I was one of three black people in the organization. Not necessarily because as I've told, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in a lot of spaces where I was the only black woman or black person. So that wasn't what caused the lack of belonging. I mean, that certainly added to it. Right. But I would have felt like I belonged if I walked into that office and I didn't feel like people were staring at me because I was black. And, or when music was playing, it was always hip hop music, right. In the, in the, in the, um, in the, the, the hallways And there was always the N-word. It wasn't bleeped out or anything. So I didn't feel, obviously, I felt like I was, I stood out. It made me very uncomfortable. Little things like that, you know. I want to take just a second to extend a very warm welcome to each of you listening all around the world to join us in our Patreon community. That's where we go a little bit deeper in these episodes where I drop exclusive episodes with extra content from our interviews. If you stay with us for a certain amount of time, you'll get some merch like stickers, totes, and fun stuff like that. And it's just a place for each of us who want to join into this community and go a little bit deeper. So if that's something you're interested in and you'd like to join us there for a deeper conversation, please check us out at patreon.com slash a world of difference. Now back to the episode. 
is what creates or leads people to not feel like they belong. Right. And when we're now we're that we're in like this virtual world, right. Where a lot of offices are virtual. It's really critical for managers to build relationships. And it's really about coaching. I mean, it's really about asking questions. That's really where it starts. I think that's the thing when I, when I work with, you know, different managers around these conversations, they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Like they, because we historically we've made diversity, equity, and inclusion, like this ethereal concept, like you have to understand and know what all these terms mean. So people are intimidated. No, it starts with just connecting with a person asking them questions like, you know, how do you like to receive feedback? Like what, you know, what's worked for you in the past in terms of management style, right? Are you more hands-off? Are you more hands-on? Like these little things is what builds trust. And that building of trust is what allows people to start to feel like they can, they belong in the organization. It starts Uh, with I couldn't agree more when it comes to building trust. Some people have this leadership style where they're like, you know, trust should just be given to me, but as the manager, as the CEO, as the boss, I feel like it's very, um, it's a naive perspective in a lot of ways, because that's not, if the world ever worked that way, it certainly doesn't seem to be working that way right now. Um, Yeah. Everyone does. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, we talk about this even as a family, since our kids were little, we have a little trust. Uh, we, when our kids were into Legos back in the day, we would say trust is built one Lego at a time. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know, parts of it might get knocked down, but then you just build it back. Like, that's the thing. It's not like this perfect thing. Um, but it's like every interaction, every time you notice someone, every time you make them feel like they are heard and you actually do listen and they you remember the things that they've told you all of these things build trust and I think a lot of managers struggle there and need that kind of coaching and Lori I was gonna say something else like I I also see I mean there are little things that that we can do as managers that human resources can help to reinforce to establish a sense of belonging right Here's another one. I mean, this is flipping DEI on its head because I don't think people, when they, when we think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we think of diversity categories. We we only think of like that first layer, which is biological, right? Um, you know, race. We think of you know um, sexual orientation, right? We don't think of like that next layer, that you know layer two, that the cultural where it could be nationality. So when I think about um, inclusion, a lot of times here, this is something that's, you know, listeners like consider this, like for many of us, we work at organizations that are global at this point. Inclusion looks like when you schedule that next team meeting, are you considering those people, the people on your team that are in a, you know, a different time zone and it's like 6 PM for them, Right. Things like that and acknowledging those little things is part of building inclusion, making the person feel like, oh, I was considered. And even if you don't have the answers, it's asking the questions. You know, 
I know that, you know, we're all my team members, we're all in these different time zones. So let's see if we can figure out a way to, you know, schedule these team meetings that work for everyone, right? Maybe some of us can have our, we can agree that you can have your video cameras off. I don't know, right? So that, these little things, I think that we make DEI so grandiose and we try to, you know, um, find ways to make these grand gestures that we overlook the small things that seem small, but actually can go a long way. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, having lived and worked in Singapore for many years, a lot of um, people that I knew there worked in banking and different things. They'd have to be, they'd have to deal with like when Hong Kong was going, which was like an hour different, but then also like when this New York Stock Exchange was, so they felt like they were always working. Like they were just constantly 24 seven on these calls. Right. And I know that some things got out of hand, especially during COVID with people working more instead of less and all these things. So mm-hmm. I think that there's ever been a time to reconsider how we can work. It's certainly now where employee retention is causing us to have to rethink. And, you know, I, I would love to press into this space a little bit um, just as a you know particular example. So people can have a specific example of what maybe implicit bias looks like, or, um, and it, like, let's just take the example of being a woman, which is something both you and I share in terms of a, you know, a category, a box that we could check on a form. <laughs> um, and, you know, so much of the workforce back in the day was built by men for men. And then even now, part of the reason so many women are leaving the workforce, especially if you add in a factor of being a mom, which is another level of marginalization in the workforce, Um, you know, if moms had to be home for whatever reason at three o'clock and then, you know, just that period of time of day, three to five, they may need to be with their kids, but then they could work later at night when their kids went to bed and just that flexibility, we're seeing more companies be able to do But when you have managers that constantly make the meeting at three o'clock, because that's how their boss did it, who was a male. And that seems like the default and they just don't ever question it. So some of those things, like, let's take the example of what it would be like for a male manager to just open up his mind to what it would be like for a woman on his team? How would you coach him in that? Um, so the, the conversation becomes, you know, you know, think about what the experience might look like for other people in your team, right? Um, let's think about, um, what are we not considering? I mean, it's, it's asking the questions. Let's look at the, the, let's consider the different backgrounds of all the different people in your team, meaning, okay, what makes everyone on your team similar? How are they different in your eyes? I think that that's the first thing because some people choose not to see how people are different. Right. And I think that culturally and we're conditioned to not see it. Like it's bad to even acknowledge that people are different, right? And so I think the first question really does become, it's okay to acknowledge that people are different. That's not a bad thing. That's okay because we want people to acknowledge, you know, it's let's embrace people's differences. That's what makes this so, you know, such a rich environment. So how are people's experiences, you know, back, how are they different? How are they similar? That's the first question, right? Then the second question is, do you think that everyone, based on how they're they're different, 
you know, do you think that, you know, the, the timing and the, you know, the, the experience they have in these meetings are similar, right? How could they be different? How are they the same? And let the person really think, right? And I think, and, and for me, it's not about um, telling people, um, it's really about letting them come to their own conclusion, right? And usually when you open it up with these open-ended questions and allowing people to really think through, they'll surprise you, you know, um, they will consider, but you do have to kind of nudge them. Right. And so, like I said, usually the reason there, there is oversight or people choose not to acknowledge, or, you know, that three, 3 PM meeting doesn't work for everybody. The manager has never considered it as one. They don't have time to consider it. That's one, right there. They, they may not have time or, Two, they don't feel like they have permission to acknowledge how people are different because that's bad. Like that, they're they're going to get in trouble for that. Um, so that's that's really what you know. We want people to acknowledge and, and we want managers to learn how to navigate and assess. Yeah, that's that's excellent. I mean, obviously, here at the World of Difference podcast, we are all about people are different. We're all different. We're all unique very unique and wonderful ways, right? And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this world is that we're all so unique and different. There's different colors. There's different experiences. It's, it's wonderful. And, um, and we embrace being different. And that's how we can make a difference is by acknowledging the differences among us and, and bringing those to the table, you know, in a really flat level of like, we're all in this together trying to figure this out. But I, you know, I do feel like, um, giving people the opportunity to think through it. That's such, that's such a good way, like almost like a Socratic method, like questioning and helping them discover for themselves. You know, a lot of women in the workforce work, we, we're not surprised when we get into a performance review and they don't focus on our outcomes. They focus on how we did it, our tone or our voice. You, you didn't speak up enough or you spoke up too much. You were too strong. You weren't warm enough. You were too warm. You weren't strong. But we can never quite thread the needle. And so for male managers, they often don't realize that's the exhaustion that we're facing. And, you know, just helping male managers understand when you're, you know, when you're dealing with a woman in a performance review, when you're giving feedback, you don't have to tiptoe around her. She's not fragile, but you just have to understand the history she's walked through and that there are these sexist tropes that you may be playing into with your own unconscious bias. And this will help everyone to be free from these this bondage that we all face in the workforce, right? <laughs> and I think, and asking that question allows the, the manager to dig deeper and look at a couple of things. One, there are, you know, people from different marginalized spaces experience different biases, different ways in the workplace. So it's important for the manager to really think and be forced to think in that way, right? And by asking that question, they can start to acknowledge how each person is different. And secondly, you know, we think about um, sitting at the, you know, we, you know, we we talk about this this concept of, um, you know, it, it escapes my mind all of a sudden, um, but the the concept of intersectionality. So that also is a really important thing, right? Because not all women are going to have that same experience. And that's important to get the manager and the team to start to discuss, well, what works? What 
why doesn't it work for this person? Why does it work for this person, right? We can't assume each and every person experiences biases the same, right? I love to use an example of, um, you know, the, the example of black people getting like the, 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 I would call it, um, um, a microaggression is the, you know, when you get the comment of, oh, you're really well-spoken, right? So, I mean, I talk about that also, and I, you know, share how anyone who experiences a microaggression can actually navigate through it. They're different. We all have a choice on how we want it. We can, we want to navigate through it, you know? So after a while, I learned that rather than being offended by that comment, asking a follow-up question, well, what do you mean by that, right? And an open-ended question to get clarity. When I ask that question, surprising, right? People were able to follow up and explain. And it actually was a compliment, right? Sometimes we use a lot of jargon is what I'm saying. But ultimately, what I, I share in that example with that example of the comment of, you know, you're well-spoken is, you know, I could be offended by that statement. You can talk to another Black person who's not offended because sometimes people also internalize biases and microaggressions, right? So one woman could internalize, well, yeah, you know, nobody, you know, even though I'm, you know, I have to take care of my kids and all that, you know, and, and work and, and navigate these two worlds, um, you know, this is just how it is. I just, I, you know, I, I, my, I'm never going to be, you know, that, that's never consideration, right? Um, in the workplace. And they might internalize that themselves. And then to add to that layer, sometimes it's not just the man who's the one who would say, hey, you've got to work at 3 p.m. or whatever. We have meetings at three, whatever. Sometimes it is another woman because she's had to internalize it. She's had to experience that. So she feels like, well, that's just how it is. And I can't, you know, give other women an exception because I had to go through it. Right. And so um, I think all of those layers are things we get to talk about um, in these conversations if we want to, especially with management development. Yes, that's amazing. I love the concept of intersectionality. It's helped me for years to understand the multiple layers that can happen in a person in workspaces and all kinds of spaces. Um, so here, you know, we're about to head into, um, you know, Black History Month in the United States. And so as someone who your history as a Black woman in America, it, it doesn't, my understanding, unless there's parts of your story I don't know yet, doesn't come from enslaved people who were brought to work in forced labor camps and what we call plantations. And, you know, we whitewashed a lot of things and uh, what was an act of terrorism, basically, in our history. But yeah. you're story is more of like an immigration story. And so do you often find that people make assumptions about you that your black history is kind of a particular way? And is that a conversation that's been challenging for you to have to navigate at all? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, it just depends on how people perceive me. Right. And so it's all, it, it just depends. And, and as I navigate the world as I navigate the US, it just, you know, I never know how people perceive me. Some people assume that 
you know, if you're black, you're black. And like in, in the US, it doesn't, you know, we've seen in a lot of instances, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, what subgroup you are, if you're black, you've got, you know, you have similar experiences of being profiled in a lot of ways. Um, and then there are some instances where, um, you know, individuals might see me, they think I have been complimented, right? And that's, again, it's a microaggression, it's a black backhanded compliment. Um, oh, you're, you're different. You're not like other black people or African-Americans, right? Which is incredibly offensive because I feel like one, if you are, you know, a black person in America, whether or not you have the history, you carry that history or not, you know, I benefit from the tragedy, the brutality that African-American people experience. I benefit from, I have certain privileges that they, they fought and died for. So I could be here. And so as far as I'm concerned, that is part of my history. That is part of my identity at this point. So, um, you know, to your point, you're going to have people that are going to decide they're going to define you. However you, they, they think it's all perception. Right. Um, but we can't worry about that. Right. All we get to do. And that's, that's, that's the whole point of, you know, DEI is, you know, we're going to assume certain things, assume certain narratives, assume, you know, certain identities about people, but what we get to do, if we really want to, and if we are willing to is just ask questions and learn. And what we also get to do on the other end of it is be open to sharing if we want to, right? We've got to create safe spaces, but as long as we're all scared of asking the wrong question and not asking the right question and offending someone, we're not going to get as far as we can get. So I, I agree. Always, um, people ask me like, oh, you know, you don't seem, you know, where are you from? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, you know, and I started to ask before I used to be offended, but but then I started getting, I, I get, I get that question from everyone, right. Yeah. Whether black, white, whatever. And so I started to follow up with, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, where do you, you know, what led you to that question? Yeah. And you'd be surprised by the responses. Like, you know, people say, well, cause the way you speak or the way you carry yourself, I wouldn't necessarily have thought you're American. I mean, that's kind of interesting also, just because I fought my whole life to be American. And I just <laughs> right. to be American enough. But um, I think, I don't know if I answered your question, but you did. Um, okay. no, it helped me know you better. And, and thank you for answering it in the way that you did, because it helps us know all of us listening, how important it is to ask questions and not be afraid of them because we can only get to know each other as much as we're willing to ask some of the questions. And, you know, we yeah. often get surprised by the answers. Obviously people yeah. look at me and just think I've lived in America my whole life. And I really only moved here two years ago and I'm 46. So. Really a global <laughs> citizen. I, it's amazing. And I think it's how we ask questions. And I think, yeah. and that's, that's part of the journey of DEI. It's how we ask questions, how we respond to things uh, when people say them. That's really, that's, that's where things start. It's, it's not giving people the language. People already have the language. They're trying to create, use all this jargon, all this complex jargon, just start with questions 
and asking permission to ask questions. I think that's the most important thing because sometimes, you know, someone doesn't feel like answering and that's okay. Yeah. But you learn that as a manager, you learn that, you know, in, in coaching, right. If you're a good manager, you're, you should be a good coach and some, and you should know how to give feedback and how to engage in conversation. And one of the things you should, you, you know, all good managers know is that sometimes it's not the, the best time to engage in conversation, right? Yeah. It's not the best time to ask questions, it's not the best time to ask feedback, same concept of, you know, trying to uncover and, and learn somebody it's asking if it's okay to ask the question. Yeah, we all have good days and bad days when we're, we're, we're able to answer the questions when we're not. So. Well, thank you so much. You've taught us so much today. We look forward to reading all of your writing. Let us know here at the end where people can find you and the resources that you provide for us. Yes, absolutely. So you can go to my website, martinecalau.com, and I am offering um, a masterclass for HR professionals. Um, to come in and learn just those three things that I said, right? How to create more accessibility to DEI in the workplace, how to reduce time that it takes to build and ramp up DEI, and how to be able to identify what the return on investment is for DEI, right? So that's going to be on March 3rd. You can go to my website and sign up. And um, my audiobook will be out soon. So for AB, the ABCs of diversity, but you can also find my book online. Well, it's wonderful. I hope you have an amazing Black History Month where you just feel like you can celebrate all the things, all the wonderful people that have gone before us to pave the way for all of us um, to have better understanding and that you just get to like celebrate all of you this month and just just enjoy. Thank you. Can I say one last thing about Black History Month? Yes, please do. A lot of organizations and companies, I feel like, again, you know, we try, we, we, the companies want to create these grand gestures around Black History Month, which I think is wonderful, but start with the Black people in your organization. You know what I mean? Right. Start with looking at compensation and equity and all of those things. That's much more powerful than, you know, these grander gestures, right? Mm-hmm. We can do that later. Start there. That's, that's what I would encourage um, for all organizations. That is great. And I just want to echo that when we think about like what a man makes, makes in the workplace versus what a woman, what a black woman, what a Latina woman makes all of those, all of that information, no matter what your company, we can just look at the wide, the broad strokes of what that looks like. And just, if we could make that go forward this year, Black History Month, it would be a gift to all of us. <laughs> Black History Month and Women's History Month, right? Hispanic heritage, right? So this is what, let's start with home. Let's start with home first. And then we can focus on grander gestures, but this will make, you know, all the world of a difference in your organization. And start with the metrics. Just start looking at the metrics. That's, that's, that's where you can actually develop your story. I love it. Thank you so much. Everybody find her book and read it. Go to all her resources. We're linking them in the show notes. Thank you once again, Martine Kalau, for being with us today. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much, Lori. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Well, I think we can remember why that was such a downloaded podcast last year. Early last year in February, at the beginning of Black History Month, we started off with this, and it gave us so much insight into not only Black History in America and Africa and her own embodied experience of what she has walked through, but how she's helping 
lots of organizations understand diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging from the perspective of someone who has been stateless and experienced so many things that many of us never have to help build those bridges, to help create empathy. I don't think that we've needed it any less this month, this year than we did last year. Can you think about last year at this time when this podcast was airing and then think through all that happened over the last many months. We're releasing this episode in the wake of two new mass shootings that have happened that have really rocked the AAPI community in the United States and California in particular around the new year for um, the Lunar New Year celebration that was happening in Monterey Park in Southern California. And then just hours later, another shooting in Half Moon Bay in Northern California in the Bay Area where I live. And when we think about understanding each other, even grieving together, even understanding how stories can impact a community, even if they don't know anyone personally, but how a community can be rocked because of being marginalized for many years in the early history with the, you know, Chinese Exclusion Act, for example, Japanese internment camps, all the things in the United States and our history and many countries around the world, the British Empire, for example, the Commonwealth that still exists, places like Singapore, Malaysia, which used to be Malaya, including Brunei. There's so much history and nuance around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm really grateful for Martine's voice in this very important topic. I know that even in the last year, so much has been written and uh, researched around is the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation working in a lot of our tech companies, for example, in Silicon Valley, where we've done a lot of seminars, um, trying to help people create empathy, trying to help people understand the perspective of others, understanding power dynamics. And there's still so much work to be done because as we roll these things out and we get the data and we realize what's working and what's not working, people like Martine are helping us to be practitioners as well as bringing in their own experiences from her own upbringing and life experiences, but also the way she's testing this in real time with her organization that she started. So I'm going to point you once again to Martine Kalau. We will link all of her information in the show notes for you to find her once again. Clearly, she impacted so many of you last year, and that's why this was one of my our most downloaded episodes. So releasing it back out into the world again so it can be helpful to each of you. If this is helpful to anyone you know that you might think of that could really use this conversation, I'd love to hear that. how that's going. Let us know in the Facebook group. And once again, wherever you are in the world listening to this, keep making a difference wherever you are. As we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join the price of a latte at your local coffee shop. You can join at our changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, 
beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us, you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 plus mini sods that aren't out there for the general public. And you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini sode. At our groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast. And you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini sodes. And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that plus also three exclusive monthly bonus minisodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers, and we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with, and once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at patreon.com slash a world of difference. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.